Pandas is a Python data analysis library and an essential tool in data science. Pandas allows users to load large quantities of data into a data structure called a data frame, over which the user can call mathematical operations. When the data fits entirely into memory, this works well, but sometimes there's too much data for a single box. The Modin project scales Pandas workflows to multiple machines by utilizing Dask or Ray, which are distributed computing primitives for Python programs. Modin builds an execution plan for large data frames to be operated on against each other, which makes data science considerably easier for these large data sets. Devin Peterson started the Modin project, and he joins the show to talk about data science with Python and his work in the Berkeley Rise Lab. If you are interested in sponsoring Software Engineering Daily, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. The show reaches 30,000 engineers each day, and if you are interested in reaching those engineers as well, we'd love to hear from you. You can also become a paid subscriber to the show by going to softwaredaily.com and clicking on subscribe. That would help us support the show, and it would mean a lot to us. On softwaredaily.com, you can also find all of our old episodes, as well as episodes that are related to topics that you're interested in, and you can download the Software Daily apps for iOS or Android, which also contain all of our episodes. Devin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We are sitting on, what is it, day 90 or something of quarantine and uh, talking to you over Zoom. You have a virtual background that is your face. It's very endearing. And uh, we'll talk about Modin and data data frames today. Your recent research has focused on data frames, pandas especially. Pandas is a famous data analysis library in Python. It's seen as an essential tool in data science. Describe the data science landscape in terms of the available libraries and frameworks today. Yeah, so we live in an interesting time when it comes to the data science landscape, I think. A lot of the tools that are really common are, you know, that are taught in schools, college, things like that. Those are the tools that are for smaller scale data. And a lot of it, a lot of the time it's because these courses are not designed around teaching students to use big data, of course. There are also tools on the large scale, and there's a there's a big rift between these two these two sections. So you have tools that are good, really good for smaller scale data, and they're really intuitive. They give you a real feel for having this kind of grasp of your data. At the large scale, you have these really big batch processing engines that kind of put all of these extra restrictions on what you can do because there are a lot of things that are kind of challenging to scale that these smaller scale tools do. So we get this we get this kind of rift in data science where a lot of companies have these pipelines where they start in pandas or they might start in Spark and run a batch job to kind of filter down their data so that they can use it in pandas. And then they use pandas to kind of do some preliminary analysis and understand the data. And then they hand it off to somebody else to rewrite that that workflow into Spark. And this rift here is is happening because there's you know different requirements for different scales of data, and I think data science it's in kind of a I don't know if weird is the right term for it, but it's in an interesting place where we don't necessarily have the right abstractions for performing data science at all scales using the same the same kind of tool set. That workflow sounds pretty painful. The workflow you're describing where I've got a huge data set and I'm going to use Spark to whittle it down to a manageable data set so that I can work with it more easily on perhaps my laptop. And I just I would like to know more about why is that kind of workflow necessary? Why couldn't I just do exploratory data analysis in Spark? Or, you know, yeah, I guess Spark would be the would be the best best example that I could think of. Yeah, definitely. So you could do this, but the problem with tools like Spark at that scale is that they require the user to be very, very intimate with the running environment that they're operating in and also with the data layout. So Spark puts 
put some restrictions on, you know, requiring to understand kind of partitioning and trying to understand when do you want to trigger computation, you know, the kind of lazy, the lazy evaluation paradigm. So, I mean, Spark is a great tool and I, and I do not, I do not have anything ill against Spark, but what we're seeing in the real world and a lot of business applications is actually that the typical Pandas user is not an expert in distributed computing. And, and Spark is a tool that kind of requires you to, to have this distributed computing understanding to not be penalized for your performance. So if your partitioning is bad, for example, a lot of times you'll need to throw in some repartition calls in the middle, or if you have like a really hot key, for example, and you do a group by on that key, you end up with, with very extreme data skew. And this partitioning is, you know, so important in performance that if you don't get it right, you end up paying very, very heavily. And I think that, you know, there's also a big, a big discrepancy between the APIs as well and the, and the capabilities. So Spark, Spark can't really do everything that Pandas can do. And Pandas, Pandas, you know, when you use Pandas, you get this feel that you're, you're, very, you're controlling your data. The, you, the system is not controlling you. You are controlling the system. You are controlling the data. You can wrangle it. You can do almost anything with the data in Pandas. And, and Spark, because, you know, they're, they're working on this kind of more relational model, more, more of a database-style model, they, they put some restrictions on kind of what you can do because those are the things that are really easy to scale in batch processing systems. So I think there's a bit of a mismatch between, you know, Pandas and these batch processing frameworks where, you know, batch processing, bulk synchronous processing, it's not, it's not the, necessarily the right paradigm for all of your data frame operations. Let's dive deeper into that term, data frame. What formally is a data frame? Yeah, so this is part of a lot of the work that I've been doing lately in the Rise Lab, actually. So the data frame, before we started working on it, hadn't really been formalized. And there's there's a lot of kind of competing implementations, you can say, things that, things that consider themselves data frames. From our perspective, data frames are very specific, specific and distinct structures, specifically distinct from relational tables or databases and matrices. So data frames kind of have four main components. They have an array of data, or you can consider it as a kind of heterogeneous matrix. So you can have columns that have different types of data. They have row labels and they have column labels, and they also have column domains or column types. The column domains are are interesting here because the, the real distinction with relational systems is that in a, in a, in a database, every operator that you do needs to have a known output data type for any given input data. So if I give you a table of floating point numbers, then I know that the, I, I can determine in a relational system what the output data type will be for any given operation that I do. In data frames, we, this, this restriction is not there. We don't have this restriction. So that, that allows us extreme flexibility in being able to kind of, you know, define operators that don't have a necessarily a known output data type. And the real power here comes from being able to kind of have this flexibility, this control over your data that, that I was mentioning earlier. The data frame is ultimately extremely useful for data that you don't necessarily know what your input data types are. You don't necessarily know where are your bad values? Where is that rogue string in a column of integers? You know, we need some kind of tabular structure that lets us handle these without completely blowing up. And, and databases are not, are not well suited for this kind of schemaless, semi-structured, kind of unstructured data. So a lot of my work in, in my, my PhD studies has been around this idea of let's define this data frame and actually use it for what databases can't really do and 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 make sure that you know we have this well formalized basis for any kind of you know implementation that we end up doing so the the data frame advantage has to do with uh with the the looseness of the output Typing? 
So not exactly. So it's, it's more that I don't need to know the data types of any particular column. So, so let's take a concrete example. Let's take transpose, which is something that we have focused and studied a lot. So transpose is relatively commonly used and, and you know, it, it kind of depends on your interpretation of transpose because there is such a thing as, as a relational transpose. But, but our, our interpretation of the data frame version of transpose is this idea that you can basically just convert the columns into rows and rows into columns and interpret them that way. So if we look at data in the wild, data in the wild comes in all kinds of formats. And if you're, if you're, if you're getting data from a data source that kind of, that places these, these data in a row format, when you really need them to be in a column format, in those cases, transpose is, is vital to the entire usage. So there might be, for example, a case where you have a table that is laid out in a certain way for human consumption. It's much easier for people to compare different items if they're in columns. So let's, let's take an iPhone example. So if I have an iPhone, a, a set of iPhones, and I have a set of qualities, it's much easier for me to compare the different properties of the iPhones if the iPhone, if the individual iPhones are in columns. You'll see this on uh, Amazon web pages all the time. So comparing these different properties is much easier for human consumption when I'm looking at a web page. But when I'm doing an analysis, it doesn't make sense for the data to be laid out that way. I want my properties to be the columns because those are the common attributes for all of my, you know, iPhones. So transpose is is a, an important data wrangling tool. And not only that, but it's also important in a lot of operators that people use in some of the some of the work we've done in kind of defining this algebra. So the output schema for a transpose, getting back to your question about schema, this the output schema of a transpose cannot necessarily be known given an input schema. And that, I think, is the real power of being able to kind of define a schema that can that the system can basically induce after an operation has completed. Instead of having to know that my my output column is going to be all integers before I even do any data processing. So that's that's a very you know concrete and big distinction between data frames and databases. Can you go a little bit deeper into that? So a data frame versus a relational table. Like, why can I not think of a data frame as simply a big relational table, a materialized view? So data frames, yeah, I mean, this is a great question. And I think that a lot of, if we can kind of back up, a, a lot of people do choose to interpret the data frame as a relational system, and they've implemented things in, or they've implemented systems that kind of uh, pick and choose some of the some of the properties of the data frame so that they can scale them. But looking at the differences, the main differences between you know relational systems and data frames, I mean one of the key differences is order. Data frames have an implicit order, and relational tables or databases do not. So if I reorder, choose to reorder rows, that produces a new data frame. But in a relational table, there is no concept of order, so reordering rows can be done by the system at will if it wants to, you know, do some optimization underneath of the hood or something like that. Another important thing here is the labels. So when you're working with this data, if you really want to have a good grasp on your data, labeling your rows, labeling your columns is very important. Now, databases do have column labels, but they don't have this concept of a row label. And the row labels are are very commonly used in pandas, and it is it is one of the most kind of keystone features that makes pandas so good at wrangling this data. The lazily induced schema we kind of already touched on. There's a lot there, and I think the kind of the last major difference is the fact that data frames support linear algebra operations as well. So it's, it's much easier for me to take a pandas data frame and pass it to scikit-learn, for example. And scikit-learn can then interpret it and kind of treat it as if it were a matrix without me having to kind of, you know, convert it to some other system. And there are, there are of course, 
machine learning libraries that work on relational tables, but the idea that you can use one system to kind of clean your data and then pass it off directly to a machine learning library, that I think is the kind of one of the biggest pluses of a system like Pandas. So I've got this big data set that I instantiate in a data frame and I want to do some operations over that data frame. That works fine if it's a smaller data set, but there are some limitations when it comes to scale. Can you explain the limitations around Pandas data frames? When I say these things, of course, I don't mean anything ill towards Pandas. Pandas is the most used data frame by at least an order of magnitude. The implementation limitations, I think, are well known by the developers. One of the biggest ones is the API, and it's very, very hard to kind of learn from the outset. So if I'm you know, a new data scientist who is coming from some scientific field, not necessarily computer science, uh, this API that the Pandas has is over 240 operators for data frame alone. If you add in all of the other kind of utilities and, and series, which is the one-dimensional kind of object that Pandas has, all of these combined is over 600. And 600 operators to learn for somebody who's just kind of stepping in and getting their feet wet with data science, it, it's daunting. It really is. And you know, here at Berkeley, we have a data science team and a data or data science teaching team and data science program and one of the things that that they've done is kind of try to drill down pandas to get some for for teaching to get some you know subset that is that is teachable to get basically it's a library that sits on top of pandas that just kind of only exposes a subset and this is really nice for people who are kind of coming in off of their scientific backgrounds not really having done a lot of programming in in Python or any other language for that matter. Another really key, I guess, limitation with Pandas is it's it's a single threaded implementation. So if I want more speed, no amount of hardware that I throw at Pandas will make any sort of difference. Uh, effectively, I'm, I'm basically just limited by, by its implementation. So I think these are the two kind of largest downsides with the with the pandas implementation and there are things that i've tried to tackle in my phd studies as well why is there this limitation on the data size of pandas so like it's often said that memory should be your, your the memory in your machine should be eight or ten times the size of your data frame so if you've got a one gigabyte data frame you should have eight gigabytes of ram why is that why do you need so much memory to deal with these data frames. So a lot of this boils down to kind of how pandas was implemented and the the internals of pandas. Pandas was created to give you this this deep control over your data. So you you basically if you want to update a single point in your data to kind of clean it, for example, changing changing a single rogue string to an integer or something like that. Pandas gives you this this power. The downside with this really tight integration of the API layer with the physical implementation is that you do have a lot of copying. So if you do some small operation, like for example, you run a fill in A, which fills all NAND values with whatever chosen value, that will create a full copy even if there's only one null in the data set. So a lot of this comes down to basically, you know, the, the really tight coupling between the API layer and the physical layer. Can you tell me about these hardware limitations or the integration between the software and the hardware layer? Like, I guess this gets into more around general limitations of computing, of at least single-node computing, Tell me about the more about the limitations in terms of memory size when it comes to pandas. Yeah, so a lot of the limitations around pandas in in terms of memory is is coming from the amount of copying that they're doing. And a lot of the pandas internals are actually using numpy. Numpy is a very very commonly used numeric computing library and and 
um, you know, array computing for Python. And so what the, what the developers of Pandas have done is kind of add some extra features and add some really nice abstractions on top of this kind of underlying array structure to make it effectively support the heterogeneous types. The challenge a lot of times with the, with the memory is that data sets are constantly growing. Uh, and we see this more and more as more companies try to try to process more data. And pandas, unfortunately, because it, because of this tight coupling between kind of the the implementation of the API and the actual implementation of the physical data manipulation, this tight integration has kind of prevented them from being able to scale pandas with the rest of the world, with the data that is being scaled out in the real world. So, you know, this this really tough copying problem in pandas is something that they've they've been working on for many years and it's really kind of a hard problem due to the kind of the tight coupling that they that they present to users. Why do pandas data frames need to be copied so rigorously, so frequently? They don't. It's not necessarily that this is a kind of requirement of the API itself. It's more of kind of an implementation where effectively one of the one of the main challenges with with pandas is that the underlying arrays that back the data frame can be physically manipulated by the user if they access if they access it via these kind of you know protected semi-protected because it's python right but these these protected fields of the data frame itself so they can actually manually access you can conceptualize this as they can manually access memory underneath of the data frame and and modify that memory underneath the data frame to modify the data frame itself this tight coupling is is problematic for a number of reasons but that is the kind of the biggest problem with copying is that if you share some memory address space for things that aren't modified but somebody goes in and edits manually that address space then all of a sudden the changes are propagated across all data frames that share that address space but the user wasn't expecting that right because the user is expecting you know and basically that to only affect the data frame that they've been touching and so this is why the tight coupling between the api layer and the, the physical implementation is something that's so kind of challenging to fix in pandas itself yeah i think it's worth talking now about how pandas queries are executed because uh if on every query or every pandas manipulation i'm copying my data frame that's going to be expensive probably there's some alternatives here let's just explore how pandas queries get executed so pandas along with most of the other pydata stack generally fall under what we've been calling eager execution, which is basically executing operations as they come along. The downside to this with pandas specifically is that you can chain a lot of operators together, and then each of these operators is executed in the order that they've been called. You may never need to see any of the intermediate objects that were created, but if pandas is creating a copy at every single one of these stages, worst case, then what you end up with is a single line of code that blows up your memory when you may have been at five or 10% before everything started. So this eager execution challenge is, since you can't do query planning, you can't know what the user is gonna ask for next. The problem is that you end up materializing everything. Everything must be materialized before the next step can, can continue and I mean, there are a lot of downsides to materializing every single intermediate object when it comes to, to memory. These queries are generally, they're not extremely simple queries. A lot of times there, there are some complex joins or some expensive group buys. And if you're doing a filter, 
after any of these expensive operations, effectively you don't need to do the whole the whole filter or excuse me, the whole join or the whole group by. What you need to do is just filter beforehand because you're never going to actually use that intermediate, you know, cross product or, or giant join. So the eager evaluation kind of reliance, it's a hard problem. And it's a user interactivity problem too, because users are expecting things to be evaluated as they're submitting them. And this creates a whole bunch of interesting research problems from, you know, from like the kind of, from my standpoint, from the, the kind of academic standpoint, there are a lot of interesting research problems around optimizing for this user, this user experience, this user activity, and not trying to avoid materializing every single intermediate object while still giving users this feeling that they're both controlling their data in a kind of an intimate way. And also that, that the CPU is working for them effectively. Are there opportunities for query optimization under the hood? Would that be, if we could optimize the queries against these data frames, would that improve the uh, constraints on memory, this copying problem? Would that be amenable to more scalable data frame usage? Absolutely, it would. And memory is really only one kind of piece of all of this, but I, I feel like memory is the kind of the biggest pain point. And I'm glad we're hitting on this because a lot of people, whenever they kind of evaluate pandas, they show plots of like CPU, uh, CPU times, basically. The query planning involved in data frames so far has been around basically transitioning from an eager evaluation setting to a lazy evaluation setting. The challenge with this in an interactive setting is that when the user is sitting at their keyboard and thinking about things, the CPU is not working towards an answer. The CPU is idle waiting for the next input. And in these lazy evaluation systems, they they basically have tried to kind of move back to the, the declarative nature of SQL. So in SQL queries, what you do is you write out a whole query and then submit it all at once. And the, and the system gets to kind of look at the whole query, understand this is my world until I'm finished executing this query. Once I'm, you know, I can, I can rewrite things, I can manipulate things as much as I want. Lazy systems have, have basically taken that kind of declarative approach where they're basically queuing up operations. And then when the user does something that triggers computation manually, for example, then those systems will basically look at the, the queue that they have and be able to rewrite things and treat that as their world. So lazy is, is effectively declarative. And that kind of puts some, it, it puts some challenges on the user who is trying to interactively debug their queries. So I think the hardest part about interactive data science and exploratory data analysis is this idea that when we are interacting with the system, a lot of times it, we sacrifice a lot of, you know, user time in the interest of CPU time. If you consider this lazy evaluation approach, what I'm doing is effectively queuing up things and, and keeping the CPU idle all the while the user is, you know, thinking, right? And the user might be thinking for a long time. There might be these kind of long pauses in between when they actually submit queries. In the eager evaluation approach, the, the CPU will effectively be working toward a result during that, that think time. And the user then must wait until the eager evaluation system has, has finished doing its previous, computing its previous query to, to move on to the next step. So there are, with this interactive model, interactive user model, there are a lot of really, really interesting challenges around kind of optimizing for the user's time. And that's been my, my kind of focus during my PhD program and my focus with, you know, the data frame system I've been building, Modin. The user's time should always be more important than the system's time. And it's really, you know, as, as computer scientists and as software engineers, we think about systems in terms of the system, right? When we benchmark things, we compare against systems and we compare runtimes 
and things like that. But when the user is using the system, there is a lot more that goes into the amount of time it takes a user to go from the beginning of their workflow to the end, especially when it comes to interactivity and exploratory data analysis. So I think the space is really kind of, it's kind of, it's very new, I think. And there's a lot of really interesting research to be done in this idea of optimizing for the interactive user. And does it really matter if our CPU did not get to the answer as optimally as perhaps a lazy system if we've saved the user time overall? I think no. I think that the right way to, to think about this is to treat interactive users as kind of separate from this batch case, which is where lazy really shines. Okay, so if we make a lazy evaluator for Panda's operations, how does that change the execution of these Panda's operations? Great question. So we can take a kind of a real world example, Dask, for example. Dask is a system, Dask data frame is a system that kind of tried to take a, a subset of the Pandas API and scale it as much as possible. And it's basically a system that enables lazy evaluation and query planning. And the way that it works, if we wanted to make Pandas lazy, it would be something quite similar where effectively every query does not return a new data frame, it returns kind of a lazy object. And then when we actually feel like we're ready to trigger computation, then we can just basically do something like a dot compute. And that will, that will basically tell the system, okay, I'm ready for things to be computed now. There are a lot of challenges with exposing the lazy evaluation semantics to users who are maybe not not super familiar with how systems work, how computers work even, you know, the, the domain scientists who are the primary users of pandas, who come from non-technical backgrounds and aren't, aren't primarily computer scientists. What I've seen in a lot of notebooks from these, from these people is that they, they end up triggering computation, you know, every couple of steps, which really limits the amount of query planning you can do if you're triggering computation after every step or, or every other step. And so really the challenges here are both from the user side and also from the system side. Let's get into Modin, which is what you are working on. Explain how Modin came to be. Why did you start working on this? It started effectively as kind of a weekend project, if you will. I was approached by Jan Stoika, who is the director of the Rise Lab and um, who, uh, you know, he's he's one of the main PIs on the Ray project. Um, I was approached by him and asked, you know, can you see what you can do with a data frame? Ray didn't have a data processing engine at the time, and so he approached me to kind of see what I could come up with effectively and kind of propose something. So I kind of took a little bit of time, I hacked something together, and then I released a blog post. And the blog post went, you know, it got pretty popular, I would say, uh, over the weekend. And then all of a sudden it became my my primary project. So it's interesting because it's kind of accidental, right? I mean, I, I know the problems in the area and I came from working on genomics and kind of working with data scientists who are researchers in, you know, these really large scale DNA analysis pipelines. And that was my background. So I understood the kind of domain scientist viewpoint on systems. And I basically just translated that to Modin, which effectively, you know, abstracts away all of the complexity from the user. Users are, if we treat users as the system we want to optimize for, users are effectively the, the most important part of, you know, the entire data science pipeline. And so if you optimize for the user and the user's time, then that starts to open up a whole bunch of really new and kind of untouched research problems that, that I've been exploring. 
how does Modin improve the performance of data frames? So Modin has basically taken kind of good software engineering practices and some novel, you know, kind of under the hood optimizations to scale pandas. And so Modern is, is abstracted out into multiple layers, just like you would, in, you would want in any system. And, and the Pandas API basically sits at an API layer. And the nice thing about that is that we can start to explore other APIs that people are using, SQL, for example, and apply those to a data frame context because data frames are the superset of SQL. So we can start to kind of have this unified execution backend that is highly optimized and be able to expose different interaction modalities to users to kind of interact with a data frame system in whatever API they're kind of, they're comfortable with. And so underneath the hood, we've kind of basically taken this massive pandas API and we've narrowed it down to um, what we, what we call an algebra. It's a, it's a subset of about 12 operators that represents all 240 operators plus the, the utilities. And we basically translate pandas into that, into that subset and optimize for that subset. This also lets us kind of develop new APIs for data frames that might, you know, there are a lot of like interesting and some might say weird ways of interacting with a pandas data frame that will be difficult to scale. Exposing a new API that kind of narrows down the, the search space for the user, I think, you know, that's definitely something that we're looking at in the future. And that, that will be something that we can basically just reuse this optimized backend that we've been developing without having to, you know, have some of the pitfalls that Pandas has had with the tight integration between the API and the, the physical implementation. Can you give me an example of a Modin operation, an operation on a Modin data frame and how that would get translated into lower-level operations. So if we use the Pandas API, for example, we can start with something that's, that's relatively simple. Let's start with a fill-in-A. So fill-in-A basically converts your null values to the value chosen by the user. Often it's zero in, in numeric computation. So a fill-in-A is effectively a map where if the value the map function is if the value is null then convert it to or change it to zero and so in the modin algebra that we expose this translation would be effectively a map more complex operations like you know the group buys and the joins those are also those are also exposed. So if you want to do a group by, by some key, and then a count, in pandas semantics, it's, it's slightly different than it is in SQL. Uh, in pandas, it's a per column group by. And so underneath the hood, we would do a per column group by, and then a reduction on, on, this, on this key with a count. So a lot of these operations are that you, that you find in Spark are common in MapReduce settings. They are directly translatable to MapReduce. Then there are operations like, you know, mask, for example, what we call mask, or indexing in to the data frame arbitrarily. So in pandas, you can kind of create a long list of indices and then just pass it to iLook. And these, can, these are the integer integer indices of the rows, the row numbers. The way that we translate that under the hood is with a highly optimized mask function, which basically checks the metadata, knows where each of these rows live, and then reshuffles data if it's necessary. The, the interesting part about iLoc and the challenge with iLoc and a lot of these operators is that you can use them to physically reshuffle the data in pandas. And so one of the one of the things that we're exploring is, you know, can we like is this kind of decoupling of the physical order from 
the user's view. And there are a lot of challenges with this because the user wants to see the order in the same order that it was in before. They don't want you to arbitrarily reorder your rows. And so there are, there are a lot of really interesting challenges that you know, we're, we're currently exploring on this, this decoupling of the, the physical from the logical. And so with Modin, the Pandas API is rewritten to the Modin API before querying the Modin data frames. Can you just talk more about how the selection of that subset for the Modin API, how did you pick what operations you would put in that Modin API? So the Modin API uh, you're talking about is the query compiler, I believe. And the query compiler under the hood is the way that we chose these operators is based on what other data frame systems might need control of. I guess maybe maybe we should clarify a little bit. So I was I was thinking about the so my understanding is that the Modin data frames you have an API for querying the Modin data frames, and that is a subset of the pandas data frame operations, and it gets translated down into lower level pandas operations. Is that right? Uh, yes. So there's there are a couple of layers. There's one layer in between that basically. To are you looking at the documentation? No, not right now. Okay, so you're right. There is one extra abstraction layer in between the API and the Modin data frame implementation to allow other distributed data frames to implement that interface and get all of the benefits of the Modin API abstraction at the outermost layer. So effectively, Modin is laid out in, we can consider it as you know four main layers, and it's a few more than that, but at a high level, four main layers. There's the API layer, which I mentioned earlier. There's a query compiler, which is where the API layer is directly translated into. This query compiler is not tied to Modin data frames itself. It is abstracted out so that new, new data frame implementations can basically implement this interface and get all of the, all of the nice benefits that we have with this, this outermost abstraction of the API. That was kind of a, a community like a, we have some, some groups are, are already trying to implement this interface. And, and it was kind of an idea that not every, not every new system needs a concrete API. And we don't need distinct APIs for every new implementation. You can implement this interface and we'll just kind of have this unified API layer that, that all of these data frames have. The, da the Modin data frame is our internal implementation and that is where the algebra comes into play. So the query compiler is a smaller subset, but it's not, it's not the 12 operators. That is something that we have worked with other groups on to see you know, what, what would an outside data frame implementation want control over? What kind of parameters do they need to know about? What, what control do they need to have over their implementation to be able to treat that system as a black box that we can just basically query into. So that abstraction, it exists for that purpose. The Modin layer is effectively an implementation of this kind of minimal, minimal subset, the 12 operators, and then below that is execution. And we've abstracted out execution as well because an interesting observation that I had was that data frame users, typically they don't care about what system most often it is the people who have set up their infrastructure that care. So there's an existing infrastructure that a user might, might have access to. Perhaps, for example, it's a Ray cluster. So their company may have set up a Ray cluster and the user just basically has only access to that Ray cluster and maybe nothing else. So in kind of the way people had been doing things, these were all siloed ecosystems and they, they didn't really talk to each other. And I couldn't import the same library to use across different clusters, right? Modern is, an aim, is aimed at changing that and making it so that your notebook doesn't change just because your environment changes. Your notebook doesn't change just because the yesterday your company had a Ray cluster and today it has a Dask cluster. Every All of that is abstracted out so that I, as a user, 
don't really care where my code is running. I just care that I get the expected output and that it runs, you know, well, and that it's, it's fast effectively. So the execution environment there is, is abstracted out as well. And, you know, there's only about, we support Ray and Dask right now. Uh, there's only about 600 lines of code difference between them. And the modem project itself is about 40,000 lines or so, maybe a little bit more now, but you know, the, the 600 lines difference basically gives users the power to move from a Ray cluster to a Dask cluster and back, and even back to their single node or their laptop. And that there's nothing about their notebook that has, you know, fundamentally changed. They're still importing the same library. They're still running the same commands in the exact same way. And the output is still the same. It's this idea that we, we expose the right abstraction to the user. And then under the hood, we basically manage everything. It's the same concept that databases have had for, for decades, but data frames have kind of lacked this nice unifying layer of abstractions that, that gives users this power. So what is the kind of scale where you would need Modin? Yeah, good question. So we have users who are only using it on their laptops, actually, for some larger data sets that Pandas is a little bit slow on. Modin also has users who are using it on smaller clusters on a daily basis. We're working with some users to kind of expand this up to thousand node clusters and, and things like this. But the scale, the idea of Modin is to be efficient at, you know, all scales. And that requires some implementation. It's a challenge. It's a really big challenge to make things efficient, both on the single node and in a cluster. And, you know, Spark, if you look at, at Spark, Spark's single node performance is often, you know, much poorer than Pandas itself. And that's just because there are a lot of overheads that come with distributed computing, right? You need to manage communication. You need to manage where data is. You need to shuffle data between nodes. So there's some, some network limitations that come into play. All of these things are challenges that we're tackling in this context of, you know, the data frame and the new data frame algebra and the new data frame data model and scaling this, almost scaling the feeling that you have this really tight control over your data and that you are the one who is controlling the data. So to answer your question, we, we have users on, you know, single node and multi-node and it's going to continue growing. I think the cluster usage and that kind of thing. So how do these data frames get partitioned in Modin? So Modin is designed to be as flexible as data frames are. This is a, this is a really good question because partitioning is something that is particularly challenging in a lot of a lot of existing implementations. So in Modin, we have taken the approach that the the partitioning should be as flexible as the data frame is. The partitioning should be able to change in the middle of an operation and Partitions should be able to, you know, fuse together if need be. So Modin's partitioning is such that we can, we can effectively treat Modin's partitioning as column partition, row partition, or block partition. And that gives us a lot of really, really nice capabilities because we can start to use optimizations for systems that are optimized for any of these. And, you know, we don't need to reinvent the wheel when it comes to, you know, optimizing for a specific partitioning layout because Modin can be any of these partitioning layouts. And so when you look at like data skew issues, right, with this flexible partitioning schema, we can start to do, you know, work stealing where a worker that is idle can basically steal work from a worker that is completely, you know, occupied and, and not available. So the, the partitioning is set up to basically support the full Pandas API in the first place, and also to be as flexible as data frames are. Got it. So we're nearing the end of our time, and we've explored Modin in, in some detail. I'd like now to zoom out a little bit and just get your perspective on other gaps in tooling in the data science ecosystem. Yeah, so one of the things that I think is really missing is a nice set of standards. A set of standards for data frames and arrays. 
the challenge here is that implementations and users are interacting with different APIs all the time. And if you switch libraries because library B is faster than library A was, then all of a sudden you also have to learn a new API. And so, so the biggest thing that I think is missing is kind of a set of you know, API abstractions that allows us to not be tied to any one implementation per API. So really what I think that we need is a, is a good set of standards for both arrays, tensors, and also data frames. Any other gaps in the tooling that you envision? So a lot of my feelings about gaps come from the perspective of, you know, the data scientist. So the gaps in tooling definitely come from the idea that I can't just, I can't just scale my existing workflow, right? I get, I can't like we've started with pandas, but Modin eventually will be much, much more than pandas. And if we look at, you know, the way that people have been, been doing things in the past, there's been a lot of lock-in. There's been a lot of lock-in with with APIs from from the user's perspective, and there's been a lot of lock-in with you know environments. And I think part of this is because the people who are choosing what their what what a company does aren't necessarily the people who are using it. And so you know, kind of these these nice interplays between between systems. So if we look at something like Apache Arrow, Apache Arrow is a really, really great step toward this cross language, you know, cross system communication with zero copy. You know, we need more efforts like this at different levels in the stack to, to be able to allow these libraries to interplay with each other. And, and for, from the data frame user's perspective, from the data scientist's perspective, data scientists really just want to stop using different tools to do the same thing at different scales. And so this, this doesn't just stop with data frames, actually. This, this extends to every single other type of tool, arrays and machine learning, you know, and all of the tooling that the data scientists are using. Devin, thank you for coming on the show. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. 